Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. Creating impact at scale in frontier markets. How to approach a country's political instability as an investor with Michael Madden. Michael Madden is an experienced investor in emerging and frontier markets. He will share his experience operating in various countries going through turmoil and upheaval, including groups, coups, (laughs) coup, genocide, and insurrection. His latest investment is in Myanmar. Michael is the chairman and founder of Ronak and chairman of Tenio Capital and Restructuring. Michael was the founding CEO of Renaissance Credit, a Russian bank startup, which grew into hundreds of millions of dollars lending business. He established the American Express card business across the former Soviet Union and served as director for a portfolio of franchise markets and as vice president for the American Express franchise business in EMEA. He is a board member of Bank and Tenger, in Mongolia. This is Radical Truth. So our guest today is uh, is Michael Madden, who I've known for, for quite a while. Uh, he has an incredible career of going to places where most people don't want to bother. Too much hassle, too much trouble, too many problems. Ukraine, Russia, Mongolia, Myanmar, and successfully um, uh, doing uh, impact investing their building economies, in spite of all the challenges. So I, I'm going to let Michael introduce himself for those of you who are not familiar with him, and he, hopefully he'll be able to give us some insight as to what is it like actually working now in Myanmar. Michael, good morning to you. Robert, good morning to you, and uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, uh, I suppose maybe stepping back, um, my first, uh, I don't know if you still have me here, Robert, I've lost you on screen. I just have the, my, my microphone was on mute. Can you see me? Hello, Robert, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, I lost you. <laughs> okay. Michael will come right back. I think he just, his Wi-Fi dropped, so he'll be back in a second. Um, uh, and if any of you have a specific burning question or that you want to grab the mic and actually join uh, the podium. Okay, there you go. Michael, can you hear me? I can hear you, Robert. Yeah. Okay, Okay, good. Um, Anyway, probably just, uh, you know, starting off, my my first entree into emerging economies, um, frontier markets, probably more emerging economies was Russia in the early 90s. Uh, when I moved there with American Express uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that really was my 
first experience of of dealing in you know a um, an economy that was opening up. I spent a couple of years in St. Petersburg, a couple of years in Moscow, and I suppose when you're working for a multinational, you're sort of cocooned as such. You know, uh, you're not out there as that entrepreneur. You're working for that multinational, but you're dealing with the struggles and the nuances of working in uh, an emerging economy. And it wasn't just Russia. It was, uh, I was also touching on a number of the other countries that made up the 14 countries, not all of them, that made up the, uh, the former Soviet Union. And thereafter, my next insight beyond the wonderful world of the former Soviet Union was when I worked in London, but I didn't do any work in London. I, I did work, but not focused on the UK. It's where I covered a portfolio of franchise markets for American Express, where they were selling uh, their uh, franchise or you know, uh, converting smaller markets. And then that took me to places like South Africa, Croatia, Greece, Turkey, Norway, Denmark. So everything from an emerging market uh, into a smaller market. And um, uh, that was a fascinating learning experience. And uh, as usually happens to me, I look at everything as a project. I got bored and um, I had the opportunity to go back to Russia and maybe, you know, leverage some of my know-how of Russia. founding CEO of Renaissance Credits. And um, that was a roller coaster ride uh, in terms of setting up a bank from scratch in, in Russia in 2003, and thereafter setting up a bank in Ukraine. It was all about indirect lending, but you needed a banking license for that. Um, but building a team, building the technology, building the infrastructure, uh, it worked, it was great. Uh, I was there for four years. Uh, and thereafter, that's when I set up Ronak and then said, okay, let me combine my operational know-how of operating in emerging economies and investing into emerging economies. I should qualify, Robert. <laughs> I don't look for trouble. <laughs> I'm looking for opportunity. I am looking to make a dollar. I'm looking to have fun while I do it. And I'm looking to do business with good people, but I'm not looking for trouble in terms of my selection of markets. So, uh, Call it bad luck, good luck, whatever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, I've been involved in Mongolia for, for a long time, and that's doing extremely well with a couple of situations there. Um, you know, actually, Mongolia is a great example where you get involved in a business that starts from the ground, a microfinance business. It's called, uh, now called Hasbank, where it's now scaled into one of the largest banking groups in, uh, in Mongolia. And, uh, you know, all going well, hopefully this year, um, we will have a listing of uh, Hasbank. Uh, in the uh, in the domestic market, um, and then um, you know Myanmar, and I suppose this is really what the discussion is about today. Uh, as I look at other markets and other opportunities, um, that was my uh, my next step was to move further further uh, further east, and uh, not just into Central Asia. Uh, although I looked at Kyrgyzstan and did some stuff in Kyrgyzstan, it was to move into Southeast Asia and. Uh, Again, you know, my philosophy in terms of who we are as Ronak and what we do, we're a small team. We've got what I call thin slices of capital. And that was the attraction uh, in both in Mongolia and now in, uh, in Myanmar when we first looked at it. It's going in with a small piece of capital, combining that with your operational know-how and bringing in your own network to, um, to, to build a business and create value. The, the interesting thing, I suppose, about Myanmar is that you know, we didn't find anything to invest into. So whether it was a wise decision or not, we still think it was the right decision. We started the business from scratch in uh, in Myanmar. And, you know, to just give the backdrop in Myanmar, it wasn't flying one day and away we go. We're going to get into business. 
the the approach with Myanmar was a was a slow burn. So I had someone on the ground uh, for a couple of years, uh, and this was 2013 and 14. Uh, and basically, it was one person who was producing a biweekly report on what was going. It allowed us to build up a a, a, a relationships within the market and relationships outside the markets. And of course, when you're producing reports um, and we weren't providing really commentary, it was just circulating information that was going on in markets. It really allowed us to build relationships with people in, in Myanmar and get a better understanding of the markets. And um, during that period, I made frequent visits uh, to, uh, to Yangon, more so Yangon, uh, in terms of getting to understand the markets, the different groups, there were lots of opportunities to invest into a microfinance business. But, um, you know, I recognized that having looked at microfinance businesses in other markets, I didn't think it was a business we could scale. Uh, there was challenges with getting capital into the country, capital out to the country. And my philosophy was like, let's build a business that we can provide a product and service to everyone. Uh, and that wouldn't limit us in terms of making a credit decision and serving a particular city or a different township uh, in, in Myanmar. Let's build a business that can serve the entire market. And that's where we decided and had a plan to build a digital payments business uh, in Myanmar. And it was absolutely, and still is today, all transaction driven. We don't do any lending. Whether we do that down the road, we're looking at different options. But today we have a very successful um, digital uh, payments business uh, in Myanmar. And I should say it's a, it's a B2B business, not a direct-to-consumer business. And, you know, the, the reason for not going with a direct-to-consumer business is, uh, I'm sure many of you know from the market you operate in, that where you are involved in uh, digital payments, it's very difficult and very expensive to scale these businesses. And especially when you're educating a market or you're move, trying to move a market away from cash. As much as we think that, you know, this device is the best device, Cash is still the most convenient uh, for most people in a, let's call it a frontier economy, uh, in my opinion. And, you know, there really needs to be a, a, a strong, strong product proposition there for someone to say, I'm not using cash. I'm going to use a, a wallet in a smartphone, you know. And, I, and the other point about Myanmar, we were probably lucky with our, our entry point into Myanmar because at that time, uh, the mobile networks were opening up. And, uh, you know, people were not using um, the old handsets. They actually transitioned straight on to smartphones, which really opened up the door for us to, uh, to provide a, a wallet solution, uh, which we have today. So we were fortunate with our timing, but we took advantage of that. And today we have, you know, a little under one and a half million customers uh, on the B2B side. You know, we service probably about 60% of the MFIs that are in Myanmar in terms of their uh, loan repayments. And now we're doing loan distribution for a number of those um, microfinance players. We also work with the FMCG companies. So again, we provide, um, we provide uh, digital cash to their end merchants. So when the Coca-Colas, the Heinekens, the Carlsbergs, Metros, I'm gonna use in foreign names that you may know, when they deliver uh, their product to that uh, merchant, that merchant pays with, uh, with on-go to receive that product uh, from Coke or from soon to be Pepsi will have on, on board as well. So again, it is, I, I call it, it's, it's similar to an indirect lending business. You're acquiring customers indirectly through a B2B, and then you work to monetize those customers directly over time. Um, and that is, that, is our, that is our strategy in Myanmar. Um, challenges with Myanmar is 
things move slow. Um, there are sanctions. Uh, there were sanctions. You need to be careful about who you do business with. I'm an Irish man. I have to stand by European sanctions uh, as an Irish citizen. I live in New York. I have to adhere to the, uh, the US sanctions. So you need to be very careful not to trip yourself up in terms of who you're doing business with, who you're engaging with, and not alone you, but who, who your team are engaging with in the market. Um, and in terms of how did we get going and how did we set up in, uh, in Myanmar, um, I actually brought in some former colleagues and uh, it's not my success, it's the success of the team. So I, I had a good friend that I worked with in um, American Express, a guy called Alan Gilstrap. Alan came, is the, came in as the CEO, another good colleague from uh, uh, Ronak, Peter Gall. You know, he drove the business plan, the strategy behind it. The guy who put boots on the ground the first time was a guy called Oliver Belfleet Nash. He was the trailblazer in terms of getting us into Myanmar and building up our relationships in Myanmar. Um, and then we actually, we acquired the technology. We acquired the technology through a company that Alan Gilstrap is associated with. And we customized that, customized that, that technology for what we wanted to do in, um, in Myanmar. And I suppose, you know, when you think about it, you think, well, you can buy the technology off the shelf. Well, not in a frontier country because the level of customization, the amount of customization, the cost of the customization, there's no black boxes as we all know in technology today. So uh, we thought it was wise to actually own that technology. And yeah, maybe down the road, we'll sell that technology. It won't be as important when the market is settled. But uh, we decided to own the technology so we could move in a faster way, or as they say in the industry, in an agile way, to uh, come up with our different use cases and the adjustments that we wanted to make to serve our customers. And especially on the B2B side, you need to be very responsive. So that's all the nice story. You know, we're in Myanmar, we assessed it, we got launched, and uh, Ronak, again, with our thin slice of capital, as I call it, we launched the business and built the business. And then after we did our, our, our initial launch, we brought in uh, one other shareholder into our business, a great institution called National Bank of Canada out of Montreal. Um, and people get surprised when they say NBC. Uh, but NBC are active and their executives are active in Southeast Asia and Central Asia. They're very successful also in Mongolia, also in Cambodia, one of the largest banks there. So NBC is our minority strategic shareholder in the business. Uh, and the rest is, is Ramak and the team. But of course, the value in any frontier economy is the team, the team on the ground and the team you have around you, the team that you attract to, um, to build that business. And uh, we are very fortunate to have a great local team and a, a great international team with, a, with experience. But as, we, you know, as you all know from working in frontier uh, markets, you, you bring the, the essence of how to build a business, but you need to understand how that market operates. So... Having local people and good senior local people is important to be able to run your sales efforts, your marketing efforts. And of course, you know, they, they have the relationships in terms of how you're going to get into the different uh, businesses to sell your proposition. We have an excellent um, COO and deputy CEO and Amy. Um, so again, I talk about my team because, you know, my team, our team, because without that team in terms of what we've built, and I'll talk, you know, in, in a few minutes about what we're going through right now. Um, it wouldn't be possible. Is everything okay? Everything is not okay. <laughs> Before COVID hits, 
Um, you know, scaling these businesses, again, many of you know this, all of you know this, I know, is, is a challenge. And when you've got a digital payments where you're not actually getting any, um, any uh, interest income, it's purely transaction driven. You need to hit scale very uh, at a fast pace. And, you know, Myanmar is a poor market, so the level, the, the, the value of those transactions is quite low. Um, so it takes time uh, and it takes time to scale that business. And we were on a great trajectory uh, pre-COVID, like many other businesses, whether it be in Myanmar, other parts of Southeast Asia or other parts of the world. We were on a very good trajectory in terms of scaling our business. But clearly then, yes, like the rest of the world, this pandemic struck us and um, borders closed and our ability to get into the country. Um, but you learn a lot, you know, in a crisis, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about your team. You learn a lot about the resilience of your team and uh, you know who can step up and, uh, you know, who steps back. And uh, whether you're in New York or you're in London or Amsterdam or in Yangon, same principles apply. And this is sort of through the, the true leaders, as I say, stand up. And, um, and we saw that through the, the COVID period. And, um, you know, I, there's been a lot of chatter about, you know, the amount of digitization uh, through the COVID period that people moved to digital apps versus uh, other means of payments. We didn't see that actually in Myanmar. Maybe it was because we're B2B, but we didn't see that. We didn't anticipate that. We didn't expect that. So our business fell off. I wouldn't say dramatically, but significantly it dropped off. And uh, we regrouped. We were regrouping every day. But in terms of building our plan, as things were easing because of the pandemic, in, um, at the end of last year, and we're already set to go, new year, 2021. And um, we started getting some of our old accounts back and they were starting to do business again. Because I think if you're dealing with a, a Metro, and again, I'm using the foreign names that you will know, and, and, and Coca-Cola, you know, if a restaurant is closed, they're not distributing or, or a shop is closed through COVID, they don't have any product to sell or any product to distribute. So that is a, you know, clearly has a direct impact in our business. Um, but anyway, um, you know, the fun was only beginning, of course, and I shouldn't say that lightly because it's not fun. It's, it's serious. But uh, in January, we're on, you know, a, a, a good trajectory. And um, Sunday night, and it was a Sunday, I will never forget it, it was Monday morning in, uh, in, in, in Myanmar, uh, 8 o'clock on Sunday night is uh, when we had this... Um, Terrible situation and terrible situation in uh, in Myanmar, in Nepal, and then right through to the uh, the major cities in um, uh, across Myanmar. I mean, again, who could have expected that this would happen? Um, you know, democracy, I believe, is built uh, by giving people economic freedom uh, and the work that everyone does in going into a frontier country or an emerging economy. You know, once people have economic freedom, they have a voice. And I, you know, I think what we've seen in Myanmar is people do have a voice. They have a very strong voice. So, you know, they have enjoyed that period where there was a, uh, where there was a, let's call it a managed democracy, um, not complete democracy, but it did allow people to grow. It did allow businesses to grow. It did provide for foreign direct investment coming into the country. It did allow for businesses like, ours, uh, and we, it's not called Ronak, even with the legal entities, Ronak, it's called Ango in Myanmar to establish itself. But um, yes, our, um, our world was shattered. And, you know, it's easy for me to say sitting in New York, but if you're a, a Burmese citizen, your world was truly shattered on the on the 1st of February when this, uh, when this coup happened. And it was a very difficult period. And um, 
I don't want to pull it all back, but if you remember the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of demonstrations and there was a lot of activity um, and it seemed to be all good and all very vocal. But of course, then after a period of three to four weeks, it did turn, um, it did burn very, very violent. And that's when the, you know, the situation for our business changed. It had changed on the 1st of February anyway. And, you know, we had moved into a different modus operandi from the 1st of February because at that point it was about the safety of our team. And it's not just our team, but we have 7,000 agents on the ground, our roaming agents. Um, so, you know, it's the safety of the entire team that we, we had in uh, Myanmar. And again, you know, we from, I'm probably thinking from the middle of February, we had no access to our office. And again, leadership, I talk about leadership through the COVID period, uh, this lady, Amy, uh, who is our deputy CEO and COO, um, you know, what, what, she's, what she did and what she's doing, uh, supported by our CEO, Alan, and, and our CFO, Peter Gall, is, is remarkable in terms of continuing to serve our customers, uh, continuing to operate while trying to keep our people safe. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it is a very delicate balance because many businesses closed in Myanmar, Many people stopped doing business, and that was a struggle. That was a struggle, as I discussed with my management team, in terms of do we operate? Do we still, you know, are we, if we operate, are we showing support for one side versus the other? How do we balance this? How do we make sure that we kind of remain neutral so we can stay uh, operating or we'll just, you know, suspend operations, but we never suspended operations. We continue to serve, and the, you know, the again, the most modus operandi is, is that city safe? Is that township safe? And every morning, uh, Amy uh, and the team would rank those in terms of, again, red, yellow, and green in terms of, can we operate in that township? Um, I don't want to repeat what's going on. You've seen all the pictures. You've seen the news reports. Um, you know, it's, it's disturbing to think that, you know, I'm sure all of you agree that this can happen in today's world and that with very little intervention from anyone. Uh, I suppose that's the, mo the, the most disturbing thing. And um, yes, we did lose some of our team. We unfortunately lost four people who got caught up in, um, uh, in, 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 in different riots and different situations. And uh, yeah, and we had many other incidents and situations. Uh, again, the team, in, team on the ground recovered, recovered those people, got them out of prison, whatever. Um, there's no right or wrong answer to this. But at the end of the day, you know, you don't like to see people being shot, arrested. And again, I, I do need to be careful what I say, because the safety of my team in Myanmar is important. And I don't want to get into anything political here. Um, my, my, my line on this is, um, is that we remain committed to our customers, our employees and the country in Myanmar, you know, and um you know, the important thing is that we want to keep, make sure we keep our people employed. We want to keep them safe. But, you know, it is a whole other discussion in terms of politically what's going on in Myanmar. And I, I, I would prefer not to get into that because it's, it's sensitive. This is being recorded. I don't know who's on the, I don't know who's on the line here. Um, so I hope you do appreciate that. But I, I, I'd rather approach it maybe from a, a business standpoint in terms of some of the some, some struggles. But it hasn't been easy. But in saying that, You'll all have heard that the banks closed. And because the banks closed and the banks were not transacting, it allowed us, and we weren't looking for the business, the business actually came to us um, 
take on new business and take on new business in a very different way. So um, we're slowly building again. Um, there's been a lull in the violence, but we're slowly building uh, building our business again. Um, we have reset the business. There's no one being driven out there to hit a very high target. It's it, we've are, we've reset very low targets for the business in terms of where we need to be. But I would have to say over the last you know couple of months um, we have um, we're building up again. But building up again means what? You know, um, there is still a lot of activity and explosions and arrests on the ground. And, you know, this could get all very violent again as I speak right now. And we may need to pull back and reconsider what we're doing in the um, in the market. So, again, you know, I didn't pick uh, Myanmar to invest into put, to put a significant amount of capital at risk. You know, I picked Myanmar because I thought it was going to be a growing middle class and it was going to be an economy with a population of 53, 54 million people where we could, could get scale, we could create, val- create value, you know, 20% or maybe a little over 20% of access to a bank account. I thought this is great, um, especially with the, you know, with smartphones and the access to smart- smartphones, the affordability of smartphones being anywhere from 15 to $20. Um, I thought this is a great market in terms of financial inclusion, educating people on how to use finance and then partnering up with the MFIs that we do there in the market. So I'll pause there, Robert, and maybe there's some questions that, you know, you want to ask me specifically, but the political side will cover a little bit, but I don't probably want to dig into that too much. No, okay. But um, so you've been operating there for several years and the potential you, you clearly saw and you're still uh, committed to there, despite the, the challenges going forward, uh, is it easy to communicate with your team? Because we hear social media is closed and telephones might not be working. Are you able to communicate uh, with them uh, on a regular basis? Yeah, yes, yes. We are fortunate that we can communicate. It doesn't work all the time. But that there's two parts of that, Robert, is... Um, Number one is, yes, you know, and especially with the, the, the leadership of our business, um, you know, I've got to know all the apps that I never used before, whether it be like use Telegram and Viber and WhatsApp and Signal, back to texting. But, you know, what was happening in Myanmar, as you all read, is the cellular networks were closed down, the data was closed down, the Wi-Fi was closed down. Um, so you were picking those chat apps where you could get, and it took time for the authorities they shut a lot of those down and get a get a handle on all of those. But we always found a window to be able to communicate. Maybe a certain period of the day, a certain time of the day, um, in terms of how we could get that communication going. But that communication that communication daily was critical. It was daily, 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 daily communication, and probably a number of times a day. But it wasn't just the communications. Uh, and Robert, I mentioned this to you before or earlier this morning. Is um, the power was shut down, purposely shut down. Water was shut off. You know. Um, you know, so there was there was a lot of other things going on, um, and people's homes were you know were, were being were, were being attacked, and people had to move out of their homes and have moved to the countryside. You know, so there, there's there's a lot going on, but it, ha- it has I won't say it has improved improved from what, but you know it's it's um, it's it, we're able to do. We're able to conduct some business. We had to get permission from the central bank. We are regulated, by the way. We had to get permission from the central bank for our app to continue operating. So, you know, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. 
Um, but other than that, our app wouldn't work, you know, and it really just worked. I mean, of course, with a with an app, you need, if you don't have the, the data working or the Wi-Fi working, your app isn't working. Now, we have the ability to work offline with all those processes, procedures, but, you know, in terms of efficiency, you need to have. So we have navigated that. Um, it's, it's, it, it hurt us, um, but it didn't stop the daily communication flow that we had with our team on the ground. And, you know, the biggest cluster we've got is in Yangon and in, in Mandalay. You're, I mean, you're committed for, uh, to Myanmar, because I, I know, knowing you, when you go, you think it through really carefully before you, you don't dive in head first and, well, let's see what happens. So you're, you know, you, you looked at the risks, etc. Uh, and despite um, the challenges of um, uh, of the military at the moment, you're probably still committed. But what I discover with many institutional investors is that the minute that you know the going gets tough, they get going. <laughs> They're not always there. Do you see that with other institutional investors in Myanmar? I, you know, I, well, from the um, from the MFI partners, and I don't want to speak for them that we work with, and they're all the they're all the you know the the, the usual suspects and some of the DFIs that are there with them. You know, they have lending operations there, and I I don't I haven't heard through my discussions with many of them and many of them are customers that they're changing their minds. Uh, um, I think the you know, and then there's other big you know oil and gas companies. You've got the Chevrons, the Trafiguras who've got, you know, serious amounts of investment on the ground. Challenge for them is, you know, do they pull out and leave it all behind them? Do they pull out and then the country is, you know, the, the country is starved and fine, the military will be fine, but you need to think about the average man and woman on the street. And that's why in some cases sanctions work, but it's a tool of the past, in my opinion, sanctions um, in terms of how they're, how they're used. They do work to a certain degree, but it really is a, a mechanism of the past. Um, but it probably the big issue here, Robert, is the is the people who are about to commit, the people that are going to come into market. You know that that is just slowed the whole thing down. So you know how you know when is someone going to invest new capital into a country like Myanmar? Now there will be people who will do it. Uh, I think more so from Southeast Asia and around that region. But I mean, in terms of foreign direct investment coming into the country and the uncertainty about the leadership of the country. That's the bigger issue, you know. So any of the big projects, infrastructure projects, uh, and other just strategic investors coming into the country, that has slowed the process down. And so in terms of economic growth, you know, that's that's. I mean, whether it's three years or five years, that's you know, that's that's dramatically slowed things down. The only thing I would say is it is a, you know, it it's it's got natural resources. It won't be ignored. Um, it's a population of fifty three million people. Um, so, like I say about all these countries, when they go through a tough time, they're not going away. Um, they're still going to be there. So, will they come back? Of course, they'll come back. Um, it's more a question of when will they come back. But in today's open world, um, I think that will be a little bit quicker. So, whether it's under a military-run government or a quasi-military slash NLD government, um, I think the country will come back and it probably is going to take another two to three years for things to settle before we see flows of, you know, foreign direct investment coming back into the country. You mentioned that it's cash is an easy 
way of doing business and you know people have i remember when we were there we had these piles and piles mountains of cash for a little bit of currency changes how did you get people to go away from cash you you have one and a half million customers that's pretty that's a lot uh, yeah, we didn't get, we, yeah we didn't get those customers to go away from cash we 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 as Dan, I said our business model was B2B. Trying to convince a customer to go away from cash is is a an individual customer, I agree with you, is a challenge. Um so what we did is we we took it from a B2B standpoint. So we went to Coca-Cola, we did a deal with Coca-Cola, and then were all their delivery points, their merchants or retailers, whatever you want to call it, they became customers because Coke said if you want to work with us. You need to work with Ongo, and that's how we're, you're going to pay for your products when we deliver them. So again, I said we have a our customer acquisition is indirect, not direct. We have some of it is is direct, but we didn't plow marketing dollars above the yeah. line in terms of trying to get consumers. It, it just, I mean, if you had the money to do it, good luck, do it. It may work for you, but you know we don't have those pockets, and um, uh, I, I think it would be it would be a slow burn. But there's some very successful players. There's a there's Wave, which is backed by Telenor. Uh, well, it was backed by Telenor and um, uh, another group called Yoma Group, or uh, in, in in Myanmar, and they they do a lot of the P2P payments, and they're very successful. You know, and they they built a a great business. They are the leading player on the consumer side. We would be the leading player on the B2B side. Um, but again, I come back to the point: is it's about getting scale. You know. Um, so we did not go direct to consumer, Robert. So we're not trying to. Con- there is a, again, there's a motivation to use our service. Um, so we are paid by the FMCG company. We're paid by the MFI cost, uh, um, uh, company. Now those economics will switch in two to three years. So that's where we need to make sure we're monetizing those customers we're acquired. So are they using P2P? Are they using airtime? Uh, are they using it for other services as well in the market? Okay, I'm going to start taking a couple of the questions because there's quite a few. So Aaron wanted to know, are the country and political risk premiums created by Demodaran, I'm not familiar with them, from NYU, sufficient enough to base international financial models when trying to price international political and economic risk factors? No, that's that's too technical for me, Robert. So I, I, I don't know if I I don't know if I can, you know. I mean. Oh, he gave a link to that. Okay, I'll I'll try to come back to that afterwards. Okay, Roberto. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just just in terms of uh, in terms of doing it, you know, uh, our activity, as I said, is is on the ground. We put boots on the ground for two years. That's how we did our research. This is not you know Excel sheet driven or uh, other modeling. We we put we put boots on the ground to understand what we could build and what we could create in the country, uh, understood the, the capital movements, tried to understand the banking system, um, and tried to understand was there strategic value down the road? Would there be buyers for a business that we are creating down the road? Um, but you know, I, I think some of the risk models you'd be changing on a continuous basis. You do need to look at them. Of course you need to look at them, but I don't think you need to look at one risk. You need to look, them, look at them with a, a combination of other factors. Okay. Roberto uh, Davido, he had a question, Michael. You said earlier, who could have expected that this could happen? I'm in the communications business, and I've almost spent my entire career working in Asia, and I'm a political junkie. So over time, I've come to believe that in frontier and emerging markets, almost all risk is political risk. As you look at markets to enter and to invest in, 
and as you approach potential joint ventures, partners, investors, is this the main discussion point in your experience? Is investment risk considered as political risk and do investors from outside the region see risk through that lens? Yeah, no, I, I, I do agree. And it really is looking at how the political system is, is formed and yes, there's, 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 there, you know, when you, what we had in Myanmar was a, uh, you know, a, a, a partial democracy because at the end of the day, you know, a big part of it was still controlled by the military. They never took their, their hands off the, um, the levers to pull. Um, and then when you have no experience of running, you know, it's great being in opposition, but when you're given them the keys of the car to drive it, you don't have that capacity or that uh, administrative skill, you know, to do it. Um, straight away. Uh, I remember one uh, uh, former British Prime Minister saying that, uh, his name is Tony Blair, which you'll all know, and saying that, hey, yeah, I spent all my time and effort trying to get elected. And then the next day, I was the Prime Minister. <laughs> and I had to think, how am I going to do it? So, um, no, it is important in terms, of in, ter in terms of consideration. The other thing you find as well um, is that the businesses usually get involved in politics um to because that's what you do the son the daughter whatever gets involved in politics less so maybe in Myanmar but I've seen that in other countries you see that in Russia I see that big time Mongolia and it's more as a defensive tactic in terms of protecting your business but then you you get on with this retribution in terms of well this group is from this political party and when this party is in that it impacts here but yes you need to understand how the the governance of the country who's controlling what and um, yeah, it's like most of these countries, you can think you know what's going on, but what really is going on, 30% of that, 40% of that, you will never know. You will never know what is actually going, uh, going on in the country. But yeah, of course, it's got a huge, a huge, uh, huge, huge influence. You know, there's no dialogue. There's no dialogue in terms of what's going on in, in Myanmar, uh, between, uh, in terms of who runs the country today. Is there a dialogue in terms of what goes on in uh, other um, emerging economies? Yes. But, you know, some of the biggest issues is businesses being entwined with politics um, in uh, many of these frontier countries, which makes it very, very difficult uh, to do business because it depends which camp you're with. You know? When uh, my wife was hired by the governor of the Karen state many years ago to try to build a hotel school, and she said to me, Myanmar is one of the most complicated countries with all of these different ethnic uh, organizations and, and, and cultures. And, and then when she finally found the investment for the hotel school in the Karen state, then the Rohingya crisis came up and all the investors said, oh, Rohingya, Karen, that's the same. So we're out of here. And that she found really challenging that People from outside don't understand all of the different factions and organizations and cultures and uh, there. Do, do you find that a challenge also? Or no, it uh, is. It is it, it, Robert. It is a challenge. I'm I'm learning every day. You know, I, every day is a school day. If it's not a school day, then let's retire and hang the boots up. You know, um, yeah, you're learning. You're learning every day, and you have different factions and you have distressing situations, whether it be the Rohingya situation, but, you know, to the east of the country as well, um, like Karen uh, State and, uh, and other places that are 
are, are autonomous and closer to China. And you'll find that they're using even the, the Chinese cell network, uh, very porous borders uh, as well. And, you know, how much is controlled by Nepida or controlled by Yangon? It's very complex, you know. But you also have that in places in, in, in Russia where you have these autonomous places, you know, uh, South Ossetia, uh, Abkhazia, uh, you know, Chechnya, you know, was the Kremlin really controlling what was going on there? You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, you have these, you have these conflict zones, autonomous zones. Um, but, you know, the best way to providing you can get into business to help a country is to bring that knowledge and bring that capital in again to, uh, to allow people to grow, to give them, to give them a voice, you know. Um, and, yes, you need to go in in a, a smart way and an informed way. Nobody wants to leave a business behind them. Nobody wants to lose money. And, you know, I am in this, uh, I'm not ashamed to say, we are in this to create value. Um, but are we going to create value, trade in and trade out? No. If we wanted to do that, we would invest in a, a, list, a, 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 a public instrument. Um, you know, this is, this is a build. It takes time. You need to be resilient. Your team needs to be resilient. Your team needs to stick with you. Um, and it's a journey. And, um, but it's, I mean, you learn, when you're not from the country, you don't, you, you don't know the country. You're, you're, you're a visitor. Uh, you have to respect it. And you need to listen to your team on the ground to understand how to operate. And, you know, I, I, as I say, on Myanmar, I'm learning every day. You know, I'm learning every day. Uh, Beata wanted to know, what are the three key business lessons you've learned through your post-Soviet Union, UK, Africa, and current years as a leader, entrepreneur, and investor? Um, I think in terms of preparing to go into a market is how you prepare to go into, into a country and um, is it's continuous, um, but you need good preparation um, research, but be in the country, you know, research in the country in terms of, uh, and that's more about who you're doing business with in terms of the research and what industry you're going to get into. Because when we looked at Myanmar, we looked at real estate, we looked at education, uh, we looked at banking, we looked at uh, microfinance, we looked, we, we just spread it wide in terms of wh where is the opportunity. Instead of saying, we want to do this, we went wide and then came narrow. We, we came back to our, our knitting and what we know best and, and stuck to our knitting as such uh, to what we know best. But I would say the, the, the research and the second piece is, is relationships, form those relationships early, really early. Talk to people. Don't read about it. Spend time in the country. Move to the country. Live in the country. Form those relationships and get to talk to many people. So um, you know, there's many groups in Myanmar that helped us out. I mentioned Yoma Group, um, and and the the Pond family behind that have been a great supporter of ours. Even though they've got a competing business, it doesn't matter. You know, the bigger picture is supporting businesses that are trying to grow. In the Melvin Pond has been a great supporter of. And, 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 and of ours in terms of what we've been doing. And even in the last number of weeks when we're trying to get access to Yoma Bank, again, great with his team as well. So I think just having those relationships and forming those relationships early because there's no point in ringing up someone when you're in trouble. Have those relationships so that if you do need calling them, they know who you are. It's not a new discovery. And whether that be, you know, one of the embassies that you work with, you pick up your knowledge about. So relationships are, um, are, are important. And then the third part is 
what is your exit? How the hell are you going to get out of it? You know, how are you going to monetize this? And there isn't an easy answer to this, but you do have to play it forward and not play it forward on a, on a spreadsheet in terms of I can grow this and I'll get this and this is the return I'll get. It's more who, who, who is going to invest into your business or who's going to buy your business, you know, in terms of trying to identify who those strategic investors are. And I've already, you know, so from the first, from the first day when we set up, I started talking to who I thought could be the potential buyers of our business down the road. Uh, and a lot of them are sitting in Asia or Southeast Asia. So having building a relationship from day one with your potential exit partners um, is, is, is probably the, the third thing that, and you may think it's a waste of time. I don't think it's a waste of time. I think it's important that you educate people about what you're doing. They get to see your staying power. They get to see what you're doing. They get to see your build. Whether they want to get involved in your business to invest it or buy it down the road, that's another thing. I think it's time well spent. Okay. Uh, Charles wanted to know about investment opportunities in Myanmar. What opportunities exist in today's situation? Are agriculture and other productive sec sectors also badly affected? Uh, well, the supply chain has been disrupted. Um, the supply chain period has been disrupted in terms of transportation, although a lot of stuff comes by comes by boat, but it has been impacted. Yes, there are. There's, I mean, all these businesses need capital. You know, we were we we as uh, Ronak uh, Asia or Ongo were out raising capital. We started in January. I think I had two conversations in January, and we just shelved it thereafter. Uh, you know, we'll go back to the market again, but we'll we'll wait. We'll go back to the market again, probably later this year, uh, probably towards the end of the year. But we'll see what happens. You know, but th there are sectors you can still invest in. Um, the one sector I would probably stay away from um, is banking um, because it's difficult. I always say with banking, and even though I'm involved in a bank in Mongolia, when it's good, it needs capital to grow. When it's going bad, it needs capital to uh, support it. And I think some of the multiples are pretty much fixed in terms of the valuation of banks and highly regulated, of course. But I think through the MFIs, whether you want to go in through a debt instrument or you want to go in terms of equity, you know, there are there are investments, there are investment opportunities there. And there's a I think there's one or two public uh, uh, public companies in Singapore that uh, holdings in Singapore, uh, family holdings that have investments in uh, in Myanmar. It really depends on the sector, of course. Okay, Derek wanted to know, do you see an opportunity for public-private initiatives to scale some of your projects over the medium to long term? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the other reasons for us thinking through um, uh, whether we should kind of like suspend operations or stay there, we, you know, we, maybe it's not in the public-private, but we are talking to donors who need to distribute funds uh, you know, we've got a network across the country. Um, there's a lot more we can be doing even through this crisis. Uh, we're distributing um, 25 million for a, a, a group in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we need to be sensitive to make sure it's not political. It's it is true aid that's going into the going to the right people, and of course we can validate that and vouch for that as well. So we are we are involved in some relief efforts, and we have discussions going. We've, we've, we've entered some discussions in terms of our ability to distribute relief in the country should different groups want to put it out. But in terms of public-private partnerships on a, on, a, on a different scale, because this is just meeting the crisis right now, no, absolutely. Um, 
one has to be uh, one has to be uh, open-minded uh, about how you do it and how you build it. We do not have all the answers, and um, you know we're we're open to listen, open in terms of you know who we could do this with, uh, whether it's dealing with something completely different. We've all had data. We have seven thousand uh, agents. We're operating in all the major 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 cities. We've got a great customer base. We own our technology. I mean, our technology runs in the cloud. It's on the like most businesses today. We don't have a blinking server uh, in, uh, in, uh, in 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 Yangon. It's all uh, architected. Our technology team sit in Maryland, in the U.S. That's where our chief technology officer is. That's where it's all architected, and it runs in the cloud out of um, out of Singapore. So um, yeah, uh, you know, I think if we've got some breathing space, we'll look at what we can do potentially in some of the other clusters of markets as well with our technology. Uh, in Southeast Asia, but op- open to any form of partnership, a public-private partnership right now with groups in Myanmar is is, is probably a challenge. How did, how has Myanmar done with the whole COVID pandemic in Asia? Because you hear some incredible stories of some of the countries in Asia have done a phenomenal job uh, in containing it and keeping the number of infections and and deaths quite low. And then, you know, India is now kind of off the chart. How did Myanmar do? Myanmar was doing excellent, uh, Robert. uh, Really? Up to the 1st of February. And, you know, in a a socialist country, there's good order and people follow it and it's policed well and it's run well. I mean... Our office was completely readjusted, inspected 15 times, um, you know, during uh, 2020. Um, and uh, in terms of their tracing of people who were, uh, you know, near anyone who was contaminated, you know, the COVID police, and they did have COVID police, uh, you, know, you know, insisted that you had to move to a certain location. They were doing an excellent job on it. Um, now, uh, data... Uh, yeah, I mean, their reported cases were very low. Um, but, you know, I don't know if anyone ever, any of our, I think one employee got, got COVID. That was it. Um, so they were doing an excellent job. Honestly, I don't know what's going on right now. From the 1st of February, there's other priorities. And I don't know what's going on right now. Are we going to have another, you know, did they do such a good job that it's contained? And remember, the borders are closed. You can leave but getting into the country is a big challenge. So the borders are closed. So if they did a good job up to the 1st of February, they may be okay, or maybe they're not in certain parts of uh, Myanmar. And oh, hopefully, please God, we don't see the situation like they've got in, um, in, uh, in India. And is that the next wave to hit Myanmar? I don't know. That, that does concern me. Do they have a good healthcare system in Myanmar? They have an okay healthcare system. I mean, the elite will go to Singapore for sure. um, for, 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 for health services. They, they have an okay system and a system that's changed probably in recent years where, you know, it, it takes some money to get to the front of the line, as we see in many of these frontier countries that open up. What can the uh, audience that is listening live now and those that will watch the replay do to help you? Or me, and hey, me. I mean, listen. I mean, at least um, take an interest in the country. If you're if you're interested in investing in the country, I know happy to point you in the right direction. 
if you're interested in the whole world of digital payments, happy to talk to you. Um, but, you know, as I say to uh, many people in other countries, you know, investors, you know, do you think there's a line of investors waiting at the border to invest into your country? Mm. No, they have other choices to make. They don't have to come to Myanmar. They don't have to go to Mongolia. They don't have to go to Russia. They can go elsewhere, you know. You are not the last country in the world. You're, it's not the last opportunity to make a dollar, create a dollar, uh, or more value, whatever it is. So I think um, I would say, you know, look to the medium to long term in Myanmar. Um, you can you can get in there with a, as I say, a thin slice of capital, create, create tremendous value. We all look back and say in hindsight, ah, oh, if I only did that, if I only did that. Now, maybe we say if I only didn't do that as well. So let's balance it out. Um, but, you know, if you've got the patience for the for the ups and down. And the other thing I didn't talk about is the currency, you know, because lots of people invest into emerging economies. The underlying business does great. And then you, it, the, the movement against the dollar or the euro kind of takes away the, the, the upside that we can all gain off the, uh, off the business. But I would say to anyone, I'd say is keep, keep an open mind about Myanmar. What's happened is, 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 is really bad. And think about a country like Thailand that is run by the military. Mm. And yet there's lots of businesses there. You know, does, does, does Myanmar go in that direction? I, I don't know, but it's not, Myanmar is not the first country uh, to go back and to be controlled by the military. And it won't be the last either. Um, and, you know, tell me where the perfect democracy or the perfect uh, political situation is in today's world. You know, everyone's got a voice. Uh, social media is powerful. News is, you know, the quality of news today is, 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 is concerning. Um, so there's no, it's, it's finding that balance. But the social balance, there's an imbalance in terms of the social balance in Myanmar today. So that's a problem. And how do you help the people? Get involved. Let's hire more people. Give them a job. Um, and you can grow a very successful business, as your wife did uh, in building a, uh, building a hotel there and, uh, you know, a training hotel. And, and what a success. And I also think they're the standards, they're the corporate standards in terms of people that work in your business or leave your business. They see the standards and the norms that you work to. And I think they take those into other, into, uh, other businesses. When I went to Russia in the early 90s, people that worked for me in 94 and 95, I hired them into my business in 2003 when I set up a bank. You know, um, you know these countries are big, but they're small. Hmm. Uh, Ragnar had a question about what is the impact of COVID on microfinance institutions in terms of delinquencies or equity requirements? It's, I, I think the COVID situation was bad for them because, again, it's the, you know, in microfinance, in terms of the, the, the end borrower, it's never usually an issue of them repaying and the trust of them repaying. But if they lose their job um, or their business has suffered, uh, it's an issue. It's I, I don't want to speak about any particular microfinance company, but some of the major ones are having big problems in in, in Myanmar. And while they were while they were managing through that through the COVID period, clearly you know what's happened since the coup on the first of February has exacerbated that for them. Um, and you you have all the usual suspects uh, in the MFI world uh, there, and of course it's it, it's 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 hurting them, but. What do they do? Pack up and leave, or you know, maybe slow down their their, their loan origination, uh, which they have done anyway by default, and then work on you know work on the the recovery and the build up again of their uh, of their loan books. But 
Clearly, it's had, had a dramatic effect. Uh, Roberto wanted to kind of clarify that for you, the focus is preserve as much value as possible, protect your employees as much as possible, but wait out the political and public health issues and play the medium long-term game to, to kind of get through this difficult period. Absolutely, 100%. That's what we're doing. Our business is growing month and month. I, I, I Usually I'd be shouting loud about that, but I, I you know, it's... it's I want to just stay measured about it because it's a very difficult situation. But our, our business is, is and, and the outlook for a business with some new business we've signed over the next two to three months is, is looking good. But we have reset our business to a lower mm. to a lower level in terms of operational costs and the support we have around it. But, oh, yeah, we're not. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's disruption. But, you know, you build a lot of loyalty with your customers. You build a yeah. lot of loyalty with your employees through this period. You learn through this period. And... You know, we've we've a, we've a lot of great leader in our business uh, in, in 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 Myanmar, and no foreigner could have done this. I mean, they're all local people. Uh, our CEO Alan is is foreign, and Alan unfortunately is in he's he left the country because of COVID, couldn't get back into the country, and clearly can't get back into the country now because of the the military coup. So we we have our challenges, but as we've all learned to adjust, um, whether it's using you know uh, video or using different chat apps. You know, it doesn't stop the way we're, we're operating. We remain committed to our team. We remain committed to our customers in that order. And we remain committed to the country. So, yes, we will continue to operate unless someone says, shut down your operation. You have to leave. And clearly we have to, you know, we, we can't retaliate. We have to obey if we get those instructions. So far, so good. You know? so, so there are no sanctions for what you're doing in Myanmar. There are, we have to be careful in terms of who we do business with, but there are no sanctions in terms of the types of operations that we do. Um, but there are, there are sanctions against people. We, you know, we have the OFAC list in our database, the European list in our database. So we have to be very careful about the groups and the individuals that way we do business with. Okay. We're coming down to the end of the hour. Um, I would like to take a group selfie with everyone. I want to thank you very, very much for giving us your time. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you to our guests and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe. Stay safe.